From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father John Tregilio. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. The best thing to happen to Monday since Monday Night Football. Father John Tregilio is waiting in the wings. If you've got a question you'd like to ask, simply send us, uh, well, pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 205 Two seven one two nine eight five, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams. Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube. Or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the hour. And our host is he is every Monday, the aforementioned Father John Tregilio. How are you? I'm doing well, thank it, you. It looks like a road game today for you. <laughs> I'm in the Garden State of New Jersey. Ah, there you go. There you go. Well, it's always good to see you and Father Briganti out of jail. <laughs> uh, Gary writes it. He says, what does the Catholic Church teach about when a person's soul is infused into a body? I can't find anything in the catechism of the Catholic Church about this. Okay, well, well we believe that the soul is created at the moment of conception, and so uh, we may not, you might not see the term ensoulment as uh, maybe previously described, but certainly the, the immortal soul is created uh, at that moment that it becomes a human person. And so once the egg is fertilized, um, then that embryo has an immortal soul, and it's a human person, it's a human being from that moment on. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. Michelle D., I would like to ask about charity for the poor. I donate clothes, and I have given beggars uh, in the street water and money. I am afraid I'm not doing enough, and the Lord will will be disappointed in me. Please give me your thoughts on what I can do to help. Thank you. Well, I think you're on the right uh, track to begin with. Um, Certainly, Jesus wants us to give um, generously to the poor. Uh, Obviously, if you have moral obligations because you have a family to support you're taking care of somebody it's also take care of yourself so you don't want to make yourself destitute because you've given everything away um otherwise you know join a religious community and then you can t- take the vow of poverty and, and and they'll take care of you um but i think you're on the right track um a lot of christians certainly um believe and practice a wonderful biblical tradition of tithing, giving 10% uh, to the poor. Uh, as Catholics, you know, we're, we're encouraged to give, um, try to at least to give 5% uh, 
uh, to our parish or diocese, and then 5% to our personal charities. But again, it's all based on what um, disposable income you have, and uh, you just don't want to give pocket change. Uh, you want to plan ahead and you know say, just as you would put money away for your retirement, say, I want to plan now uh, on a regular basis to give to the poor, whether that's to the soup kitchen, uh, to Catholic charities in your diocese, maybe it's even to your own parish. A lot of parishes have what they call the St. Vincent de Paul Society uh, that helps people in the parish who maybe they're not, maybe not even be parishioners. They just pe- uh, people who live in that in the in your territory of your parish who need food, who need uh, help with their uh, paying their utilities and that. So uh, a lot of people don't realize that your parish can also be uh, the source of doing these corporate works of mercy as well as at a diocesan level. And a somewhat related question, Dan writes in, in the 36 years after my first Holy Communion, I've only heard the word tithe mentioned one time by a priest. (laughs) No one has ever discussed the second collection situation. Do I tithe (laughs) to the first and second collection, or do I just give a chosen amount? Well, (laughs) uh, I was a pastor for 16 years, so I would would tend to lean in that direction of, yeah, tithe on both. because, uh, you know, the, the second collection, to clarify for a lot of people, uh, it can be for something very practical, uh, like, um, you know, if you have a high electricity bill because of electri- uh, the uh, air conditioning in the summertime or high um, uh, heat bill because in the wintertime, uh, it could be for sending um, donations to the, to the foreign missions, uh, any number of things. But the first and, and most important is the first collection because that's, literally the parish lives on. Uh, people don't realize that the diocese does not pay uh, for our existence. Uh, the collection on the weekly basis from the parishioners is what pays for the parish. It pays the priest's uh, livelihood. It pays for all the bills, um, the water, the gas, everything else, uh, anything that needs to be done, uh, shoveling or snow removal or uh, any anything very, very practical uh, at that level. So uh, yes, at least uh, if you're going to tithe, I'd say 10% uh, to your parish. And the first collection would be first and foremost. Uh, I would not exclude the second, but if um, you know if, if it's a matter of one or the other, definitely number one uh, it should be first. Kim is watching us on Facebook, and she said, "Do souls have to go? Do souls have to wait until Judgment Day to go to heaven?" No. Um, Certainly when, when the Pope uh, declares someone a canonized saint, uh, that is an infallible um, teaching. We believe that that person is at that moment now in heaven. Um, that doesn't mean they're the only ones in heaven. Uh, certainly, you know, a lot of people who die and, you know, maybe went immediately to heaven because they live such a holy and uh, sanctified life, or some people have spent some time in purgatory are, and are now in, in heaven. Um, you don't have to wait to the end of time unless someone is in need of um, much purgation, uh, cleansing. Uh, but it's not that you're in a holding room. Now, prior to Jesus, uh, his incarnation, and then his redemptive act of dying for us on Good Friday, prior to that, yes, nobody was in heaven except the angels and God. Uh, once our Lord opened the gates, then from that moment on, people could, and we believe, have gone either directly or indirectly via purgatory. 
Uh, Tony writes in, does the Catholic Church have a position on why Jesus appeared in human history when he did? Well, we believe it's, it says in Scripture in the fullness of time um, why at that particular moment certainly uh, things were, were right uh, in terms of uh, the salvation history. Um, it, was a, it was very strategic in, when you look at it in hindsight because uh, the, the Christian Church because the Roman Empire uh, was such that once the faith began to spread, and even though it took 300 years of uh, Roman persecution, once the empire, in a sense, uh, became Christian, uh, it had access then to what was then known as the pagan world. Um, That doesn't mean that Jesus could not have come at any other time. Uh, So God's hands were not locked up, so to speak, that he had to go with that air. But it seems very opportune. It was like the right moment, the right time, the right place. Uh, certainly, it's in fulfillment of all the scriptural prophecies that we see in the Old Testament. Kathy would like to know, I have a question. In case of an emergency situation in a church, is there a procedure for protecting the consecrated hosts? If it is the priest and God forbid he is not capable, what can a layperson do? Well, uh, I, I presume you're thinking of a worst-case scenario. Um, if somebody comes in to church, uh, and, and unfortunately this has happened in a few places, uh, somebody comes in to purposely, intentionally disrupt uh, the Holy Mass, and uh, this happened, um, I, I know for a fact, because my friend was there, uh, a, a priest friend uh, at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City, when a, a very activist uh, a group got in there, and they were protesting the church's stand on sexual morality, and uh, they they were promoting uh, gay marriage and uh, other things. Uh, they went to communion, and then uh, they desecrated the blessed sacrament. Now, what they did then there was they put it in their pockets and then um, desecrated outside the church itself. But if somebody comes in and does something like that, um, anyone is certainly encouraged to within reason, uh, try to protect the Blessed Sacrament. Um, we don't want people endangering their own lives, uh, obviously, if you're not a trained professional, but if it looks as if you could prevent or slow down such a thing, yes, by all means. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, have you ever wondered what you're supposed to do with all those holy cards that you collect over time? Got a great item for you at EWTN's Religious Catalog. It's a holy card collection book, and it comes with five laminated holy cards to get you started. This handy little book has a soft, dark blue faux leather cover. It's stamped with a gold cross in the center. It has 20 transparent protective plastic pages, and it'll hold up to 40 standard paper or laminated holy cards. 
The five laminated starter cards included are the prayer to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, very timely, prayer to the Blessed Virgin, St. John the Baptist, St. Paul the Apostle, and St. Peter. It's available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. Free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. Standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. First up today is Julianne in Fort Worth, Texas, a first-time caller. Listening on the EWTN app, Julianne, you're on with Father Trujillo. Hello, how are you? Fine. Uh, I had okay, great, great. I have a question. Um, I had an Anglican friend tell me that they did not believe in transubstantiation. They believed in, I think he said, consubstantiation, and kind of the implication that Catholics were wrong in. Um, in Holding the transubstantiation of the um, of the elements, the you know sacrificial elements into into the Eucharist. Can you explain the difference between uh, what the Anglican Church believes and what the Catholic Church believes, and perhaps even why they no longer have this? Well, I know they they they're no longer in communion with with uh, the Catholic Church, but perhaps historically, why they, they changed that belief. Okay, uh, well, um, just to do a little b- b- back history here, uh, it was uh, Martin Luther who uh, established the Lutheran Church who came up with the idea of consubstantiation, where um, the belief was that uh, the bread and wine remain simultaneously with the um, uh, body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. Um, the Council of Trent uh, solemnly uh, condemned that. Uh, we believe in transubstantiation, that the substances of bread and wine change into the sub- substances of the body and blood of Christ. Only the appearances of bread and wine remain. So it's not both, it's that there's been a change, uh, at least a substantial change, not uh, in uh, appearances. Now, in the Anglican Church, they have a wide variety of of theologies because you've got high church, low church, broad church. Um, so I have heard some uh, members of the Anglican community or the Episcopal Church believe in consubstantiation. Some uh, believe in transubstantiation. Uh, the, the difficulty, though, is uh, Pope Leo XIII declared Anglican orders null and void. There was a break in the line of apostolic succession. There's also change in intention and form. So. Uh, the Anglican Church does not have valid orders, so whether they believe in consubstantiation or transubstantiation, the point is it doesn't happen. Uh, their, their priests, their bishops are not validly ordained. But you will have that difference of perspective based on what particular um, perspective uh, that Anglican community has. But from a Roman Catholic standpoint, you know, we believe that it's a transubstantiation it's the substance of bread and wine change into the substance of Jesus' body and blood. Only the appearances uh, remain. It's not both of them simultaneously being there. That was Luther's idea, and that was uh, poo-pooed, uh, certainly officially at the Council of Trent, and it's also in the Catechism. Next up is Gage in Hartzell, Alabama, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Gage, you're on with Father John. 
Hey, Father John, thank you for taking my call. I uh, had a question. Um, the Athanasian Creed tells us that the two natures of Christ are together without confusion, change, division, separation. Um, yet, in the Eucharist, the Roman Church teaches that Christ is present, body, blood, soul, and divinity. How is that not a denial of the human nature, that he can be in two places at once? Okay. Well, that's a good question. Remember, although he has a fully human nature and a fully divine nature, uh, it's not 50-50, it's 100%. That's the mystery. He's true God and true man. It's one divine person. And so that human nature is hypostatically united to his divine uh, personhood. Therefore, um, all the attributes of uh, divine uh, personality are now uh, part of his human nature, so that uh, he, obviously, when he rose from the dead, he was able to go through solid walls. He was able to appear and disappear. Um, so all those special things that um, are particular with a glorified body, uh, he's able to be in many places at the same time because his human nature is now uh, been glorified and it's part of his uh, divine uh, person. Therefore, he is not limited in the same way he would he was when he was um, alive before uh, Good Friday. Um, he freely, uh, we call it kenosis, he uh, gave up those certain prerogatives which would have been his by right. Uh, obviously, the, the ability to um, uh, feel pain and suffering was something which he would not have uh, been had to have uh, embraced because he didn't have um, he did not inherit um, original sin, but he chose to embrace that, and so he allowed himself to be uh, restricted in the, in that sense. And just equally because human nature uh, is finite, uh, there are some uh, limitations to it. But he, but because it's united to a divine person, all those things uh, you know change after the resurrection. Thanks, Gage. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. David is in Tampa, Florida, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. David, you're on with Father Trujillo. Hello, Father. Thanks for taking my call. The question I have has a priest decides that he no longer wants to be a priest, and he stopped performing duties as a priest. Is he allowed to then receive communion or get buried in the church or any of that stuff? Okay, I didn't get the whole... Um, there was a little break up there. Essentially, if someone were to leave the priesthood, are they allowed to marry and receive communion in the church? Okay, if they are officially uh, dispensed from... Um, their um, vow of celibacy, um, they can be married in the church. Uh, they can receive Holy Communion. It's only when they leave on their own and uh, are acting uh, disobediently, uh, they did not go through the proper channels, and they were not officially uh, laicized. Uh, so it can be done. It has been done. But if some priest does it on his own, just says it walks away off the job, uh, he cannot get validly married, and he should not be going to communion either but he can do that if he goes through the proper process. And uh, it's not a, a, a done deal. You know, it, it is a, a juridical um, decision that has to be made. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Matthew's watching on YouTube. He said, I'd like to become a deacon at the end of my working life. I need to convince my wife first, though. (laughs) What things will we have to consider, and does she need to be Catholic? Uh, One, she does not need to be Catholic, but you will need her um, assent. Uh, They do not want deacons to go against, because you you got married first, and so your primary obligation is to your wife and to your family. Uh, Therefore, if there's going to be any conflict... Uh, the bishop, the diocese, is going to say no uh, to your ordination. But uh, if the if your wife's not Catholic, uh, she does not have to uh, attend any classes per se. Uh, you are you would be the deacon. She she is not. Uh, but they would like support. They would like the you know the wife to say yes, honey. You you know uh, you, you're going to have to spend some time uh, in the parish, uh, preparing your homilies, doing baptisms, uh, marriages. Uh, you're not going to have the same schedule as a, a, a full-time priest, but as a deacon, you're going to have to spend some time, and we want the wife uh, to be okay with that. Uh, so they do ask, that, is your wife um, amenable to this? And if the wife is not, most bishops are going to say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to put a wedge between you and your family, because you know the, the sacrament of matrimony, in your case, predates the sacrament of holy orders. Uh, Chike is also watching us on YouTube and wants to know, what's the difference between the penitential rite and Mass and confession with regard to venial sin? Do I still need confession after the penitential rite? Yes, the penitential rite is a liturgical um, structure. Uh, we're all admitting the fact that we're all sinners in the eyes of God. We're in need of forgiveness. Um, any of the sacraments or sacramentals remit venial sin. So using holy water or going to Mass, uh, receiving Holy Communion, would remit venial sin. But the sacrament of penance and reconciliation is the only way uh, to remit mortal sin. And so we don't want people to think that they don't really need to go to confession. Um, There's a special grace. Even if you're going to go and just confess venial sins, there's still that beautiful grace. So don't feel, well, I don't really don't need to go. Yes, you don't have to go but you're encouraged to go, even if it's only venial sin, because it's a special sacrament. Uh, so don't think that the penitential rite at Mass uh, is enough, okay? It, it, it's there liturgically, uh, but I would say avail yourself of the fullness of the grace of that sacrament. Jesse Jr. wants to know, what happened to the old Mass? Why did they change to the Novus Ordo, and are we not losing <laughs> graces with the change? <laughs> Okay, <laughs> that's a big can of worms. <laughs> um, certainly, all the graces are available now with the Novus Ordo that are available with the um, extraordinary form because it's the sacrifice of the Mass. Um, you know, there are many people who uh, prefer uh, the extraordinary form or the traditional Latin Mass or however you want to call it, um, but it's still the Mass. And uh, the Novus Ordo and the extraordinary form uh, although one's in, in the vernacular, one's in Latin, uh, one's uh, very traditional, one is a little bit more modern, it's still the, the bread and wine are changed into the body, blood, soul, divinity of Christ. Uh, a valley ordained priest is celebrating the sacrament. Um, it satisfies your uh, Sunday and Holy Day obligation, and there are the infinite graces available at that Mass, 
and at every Mass, and that includes not just the Extraordinary Form and the Novus Ordo, but also any uh, the Divine Liturgies in the Eastern uh, Catholic uh, tradition. Those are all the same. You get the fullness. Now, it's a De Gustibus Non Dispuntando Mass, as St. Thomas Aquinas would say. Uh, there's no argument in case, so whatever, which one you prefer, that's the one you should go to. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family, KMMK 88.7 FM in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, celebrating their fifth year with EWTN radio. Congratulations to Tony and Susan May and everybody at Plus Charities from your friends here at EWTN. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Plenty of time for your calls and a couple of open lines for you at 833-288-3986. We head next to the great state of Kansas. Michael is a first-time caller listening on Divine Mercy Radio. Michael, you're on with Father Tregilio. Michael, are you there? Hi, so sorry. Yeah. Oh, no problem. Go right ahead with your question. My name's Michael. I'm a, a Roman Catholic. I teach Sunday school to second and third graders every year. And the question comes up often about <laughs> dinosaurs and uh, whether or not dinosaurs were on Noah's Ark, were Adam and Eve cavemen, cave people. And I never quite know how to answer the question. So any help you can give me would be great. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, we don't know. <laughs> That's the best uh, answer I can give. Um, Certainly, you know, uh, dinosaurs did exist. I mean, there's evidence uh, of, of their existence. Um, did, they, did they die um, uh, after the flood? Uh, a lot of evidence would point in that direction. But uh, that's not to say that there could not have been uh, some dinosaurs on the ark. I don't know where they would fit because <laughs> dinosaurs are a little larger than, than our normal animals. Um, the thing is that when we read, in the, especially in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, uh, it's not written as a history book or as a science book, but at the same time, it is divinely inspired. Uh, it's part of divine revelation. So we don't want people to think that it, they're all just stories in there, in, in, as a way, because most people today, when you talk about, oh, is that a story, they think it's totally fictional. Uh, that's not what the Church believes. We believe that that's inspired text, and that there is truth in that. Um, you know, it's the how you how you look at the text itself. That uh, you know, like with the seven days of creation, uh, seven days of creation was a twenty-four hour periods. Um, you know, some theologians say absolutely not. Some say yes. Uh, there's leeway in there because you have a number layers of interpretation on that. Um, now, in terms of um, Neanderthals and um, Fred Flintstone and all that stuff, uh, I've read some very interesting scientific uh, uh, information, and this is not from the religious aspect, but purely scientific, uh, that human beings, Homo sapiens, are a distinct group, um, maybe have some similarities to uh, Neanderthals, but we did not come from them. 
that they were uh, distinct and they may have existed side by side at some point. Um, but this, this idea that we all uh, evolved from one set of uh, one type of, be of, of being that we came from apes and that, uh, that's something that they're starting to poke holes in. We certainly believe that the human race comes from one set of human beings. That's monogenism. Pope Pius XII made that very clear in Humani Generis, that uh, there is one set of human beings. And science is backing us up now, too, because mitochondrial DNA, that uh, two um, atheists or at least agnostic scientists in England in the early 80s found out, all of human being, every human being, is traced back to one uh, woman, through mitochondrial DNA, and now they're working on uh, showing that all humanity is also from one uh, male parent. So we are one family of, of, of mankind in terms of, of the human beings. Uh, whether there were other things that were similar to, uh, that's something that the jury's still out on. But uh, there is no intrinsic uh, animosity between faith and reason when it comes to this. You're still waiting for somebody to find a fossilized Bronto burger wrapper at a big, <laughs> aren't you, Father? Yes, at, at the Slate to Quarry Factory. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. God bless you, Michael. Thanks so much for the question. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. David is a first-time caller in the Republic of Texas listening on Guadalupe Radio. David, thanks for holding. You're on with Father Trujillo. Uh, thank you so much, Father Trudelio, for taking the call. Uh, yes, my name is David. I'm from Fort Worth. And my question uh, pertains to my son and wonderful future uh, daughter-in-law. My son approached me uh, last weekend. They're getting married uh, next summer, and they've chosen to have a wedding at an event center. Obviously, priests do not travel to provide the sacrament of marriage. So my son's question to me was that, how can I go about receiving the sacrament of marriage through the Catholic process and also have the outdoor venue uh, there in the summer? So that's my question. Okay, well, it, it, this is something that's um, a, a more local um, perspective in that each individual uh, bishop and diocese determines whether or not they will permit uh, marriages, uh, weddings to take place outside a sacred space. A lot of um, dioceses for the longest time said, no, you had to get married in the church. Um, certainly what we call canonical form uh, is necessary for validity that a person be married by a priest or deacon um, according to the Catholic uh, ritual. Uh, the place, however, canon law gives some wiggle room. Um, many dioceses now have expanded the permission uh, so that the priest or deacon could perform the ceremony uh, outside. Um, when I was newly ordained, that was almost impossible. We would tell people, look, this, this is a sacred uh, event. It's a sacrament. Uh, you wouldn't want uh, your doctor to do your appendectomy on the picnic table. Uh, you, you want things in their proper place. Um, but again, they have to find out from the diocese, because that, that's one possibility is that they could get permission. Um, without the bishop's permission, if they get married by... Uh, not by a priest or deacon, uh, it wouldn't be valid. Uh, if a priest were to get, do this ceremony and his diocese doesn't allow it, uh, it would be uh, valid but illicit. So the first, first important question is to find out 
from the diocese of where the wedding's going to take place if that bishop allows that special privilege or dispensation, I should say, of being married outside a sacred space. Um, the thing is, I, I had a cousin that once wanted to get married at the beach. I found a Catholic church one block from the beach. I said, we could do the ceremony right there, and then you could have the reception at the beach. You walk one block, uh, but we could still have a nice, dignified, you don't have to wear the tuxedo and the white gown. You could, we don't, you're not, certainly not going to wear your bathing suit in, in, at the church. But you can do a simple, elegant, dignified ceremony, and then they could go to the beach or the Rose Garden or wherever it is. So it, it, it amazes me that people are so um, married, pardon the pun, uh, to get married outside. If that's not allowed, what's more important, that you're married in the eyes of God? That's the most important. I appreciate your answer. Very good. Thank you, sir. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Next stop for us is San Antonio, Texas. Guadalupe is a first-time caller listening on Guadalupe Radio. Guadalupe, you're on with Father Trujillo. Hi, Father. Hi. Father, I have a question regarding a the ashes of a cremated body, a Catholic. Um, is that soul allowed into purgatory and or heaven? Uh, uh, the ashes are being kept on the fireplace in an urn, not on sacred ground, uh -huh. where I believe it should be. Yes. Uh, yeah, the soul is not going to be punished or penalized, even if, even if, God forbid, it was the desire uh, and expressed wishes of the deceased that that's what would happen. In many cases, it's not. It's the relatives who are just either being lazy or overly sentimental and keeping the, the ashes uh, on, on the uh, um, fireplace there. But the soul is not going to be held in some kind of prison or a waiting room. Uh, they're not going to be punished uh, for that. Uh, the Church did make it clear in the past that we did not allow cremation. Uh, but again, if someone did, uh, depending on what was their, their reason for that, their attitude, right now it's permitted, it's tolerated. But as you point out very appropriately, the ashes must be buried intact, either in the ground or at sea, but in a container. No scattering uh, of the ashes. But if grandma or grandpa or uh, uncle, um, you know, um, Gus or uh, Ethel is in, their ashes are still somewhere. Uh, their soul isn't going to be stuck, but they still, those ashes should be buried because we believe in the resurrection of the dead. And that's the best way of affirming that is to show respect even to the cremains. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Marilyn writes in, Hello, Father Tregilio. Thank you for your vocation. My question is about the title given to St. Edward of the Confessor. Why is he called the Confessor? Also, in the litany of the holy name of Jesus, there is an intercession that reads, Jesus, Light of Confessors. Have mercy on us. Is this the same reference to a confessor as St. Edward? Well, St. Edward was not a priest, but he went to confession. And so in uh, Old English, that was the way one was referred to as someone who went to confession, uh, the confessor, uh, as opposed to how we describe it today. 
uh, I'm the priest confessor, and then the person coming into confession is the penitent. But at the time of St. Edward, he was given that title, St. Edward the Confessor, because he availed himself frequently of going to confession. He himself did not hear confessions because he was not uh, ordained a priest. Now, uh, in terms of Jesus, you know, um, and me, priest confessors, that's a distinction which is very important to make, that the priest acts in persona Christi. He acts in the person of Christ uh, as an altar Christus, as another Christ. So when I'm hearing confessions, it's Jesus absolving through me and using me. Uh, so uh, today it, we would be a little bit more circumspect on using that terminology. Still time for your calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. James is in Cleveland, Ohio, watching us on YouTube today. James, you are on. James, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Hi there. I uh, got a question, sir. Uh, my question is about the uh, document syllabus of heirs, Pius IX's uh, document, and I was wondering if... Um, Vatican II uh, did away with any of those statements, or did it update, or was it in continuity with? Yeah, uh, the syllabus was never overturned uh, for, to, to begin with. Uh, it's just how it, how these things are described. We're using different, say, terminology, but a heresy is a heresy, and certainly the things that were mentioned in the syllabus of errors, the heresies that are explicitly uh, named in there, um, you know, for instance, this um, indifferentism, uh, Americanism, there's all these, you know, things that were around at the time that, that uh, Pope Pius uh, rightfully said we need to condemn. Um, it's not that Vatican II said, okay, they're all fine now. No, if something was heretical, it is, it remains heretical, and something that's uh, divinely revealed and has been solemnly taught as dogma or doctrine still is. Uh, we just don't use that sort of format anymore, uh, a syllabus of errors. But we still have the oath of fidelity and, uh, you know, the the, uh, the creed that is made. Um, I, as a priest, had to make an uh, oath of fidelity, promising to uphold the teaching of the Church and the magisterium, uh, the profession of faith. Um, in the older times, before the Vatican Council, it was, it was similar, a little bit more um, detailed, uh, the, the things that were repudiated, but it's the same thing. So uh, we're not, it's not uh, this creeping sort of uh, heresy type of thing that people have, have accused uh, in, in the past. Um, what is true is still true, and what is wrong is still wrong. Does that help, James? Yeah, thank you. Very welcome. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We head next to Dayton, Ohio. Mon is listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Mon, you're on with Father Tregilio. Hello, Father. Hello. I listen to you all the time. My question is, uh, what if I don't want to go to heaven, or I don't mind going to hell? Uh, you know, I leave it up to God to decide. What would the Catholic Church, why would I need religion after that? Okay, well, first of all, it is up to God where we end up. But God, uh, because uh, he respects our free will, will um, 
you know, sort of ratify our decision. So if somebody really doesn't want to go to heaven, he's not going to force them to go. Uh, he never actually sends anyone to hell. He just affirms their decision to go to hell. Um, but from a standpoint of just pure rationality and, uh, and logic, um, it, it, it makes no sense for someone not to want to go to heaven because heaven is perfect happiness for eternity. Hell is eternal punishment and uh, pain, the pain of, of loss and the pain of, of, of um, in the body, because once the body is raised up uh, at, the end, at the end of time with the resurrection of the dead, you're going to have the pain of sense as well as the pain of loss. So uh, if somebody doesn't want heaven and prefers hell, um, it's a sign of, of some, something else going on um, uh, psychologically. But at a moral level, if someone, you know, that was Lucifer. He, he'd rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. That is the sort of the ultimate insult to God, but also it's the ultimate injury to oneself. Be sure to join us for Take Two with Jerry and Debbie tomorrow at noon Eastern time. The topic tomorrow, tell us of a time you fell into despair and how'd you rise above it. That's Take Two with Jerry and Debbie tomorrow, noon Eastern time, right here on EWTN Radio. Guy is a first-time caller in Omaha, Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Guy, you're on with Father John Trujillo. Hi, Father. Hey, um, my other-in-law passed away, or not father-in-law, brother-in-law passed away. And they have a memorial service for him up in Alaska, and he was, and the gesture of kindness, my sister gave me a portion and uh, not really knowing at the time, I didn't refuse them out of kindness, so I brought them back to Nebraska with me. But uh, the remains of the ashes were buried in Alaska. I have this dilemma. Uh, so, Guy, we've got a little bit of a tough uh, connection there, but I think the gist of it, Father, is that... Uh, uh, his sister's husband passed away, had a funeral in, in Alaska. The majority of his ashes were spread uh, in Alaska, and he was given a, a small portion uh, of them, and he's a little unsure of what he's supposed to do with that now. Yeah, wh whatever he has in his possession should be buried intact, even though there was a portion, or even if it was the majority of it was scattered or whatever. Whatever he has uh, should be buried and uh, my understanding is that if you go to your, your nearest Catholic cemetery, uh, they will take, help you with that because uh, I, I don't believe anybody requires you to buy a whole plot. You could use an existing plot of someone who's there and just you know bury the cremains uh, in there on top because you don't have to necessarily dig that far down. Uh, you don't need the, the vault and all the other uh, requirements as you would with a casket that has, has the body in there. But definitely you, you want to bury uh, the, 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 the cremains uh, in, in holy ground, like I said. Uh, so, yes, don't worry about what was done before. That wasn't your, your fault. And, uh, it, it's, you know, you can't, you can't put the genie back in the bottle, so to speak. But what you do have with you should be buried. Uh, Rose is in Florence, Kentucky, listening on the EWTN app. Rose, you're on with Father John. Hi, Father John. Um my question is, my, I'm a um, born Catholic, raised Catholic, devout Catholic. My sons were raised Catholic and Catholic schools, and he's 33, and he says he's agnostic and doesn't believe in God. If he was to die right now, 
where he goes, where, where, where does his soul go? Okay. Um, we well, certainly, we, we, we leave that to the mercy of God, but I would say this, um, the church and her infinite wisdom, uh, tells us that we don't know what the state of a person's, um, mind and will is only God knows. So even though someone may say they're agnostic or that they're an atheist, only God knows to what certitude they, they ascribe that to. Um, for someone to be culpable that they would go to hell, it has to be something where they made a complete free will, uh, intelligent decision to say, I reject Christ, I reject the Catholic faith, I reject God, and they're culpable. But in many cases, as Fulton J. Sheen would say, uh, it's not that people are rejecting the, the Christ or the Church, it's what they think. Uh, it's a perception. Uh, it's some kind of uh, anomaly that they're rejecting. So their ignorance, and we call it invincible ignorance if they can't uh, improve it, then they're not totally culpable. Uh, it's only when a person has freely, deliberately, consciously made that choice. And uh, so it's, it's possible, but I would say there's still hope because as long as he's still alive, keep praying for him. St. Monica prayed for 30 years for her husband and her her son, St. Augustine, um, and I've seen things happen where people have come back. Uh, they went through a, a period of being agnostic or atheist or whatever, but the prayers of one of their parents or both their parents or whatever, or a spouse, a sibling, a grandparent, uh, certainly uh, pray for him. Have a, have a priest offer some masses for him. Go to your local parish and say, I would like a special intention for my son. Uh, he doesn't have to know that you're having masses said for him, um, but pray a rosary every day for his soul as well. And you may not see uh, the fruit of your uh, efforts, but if it happens before he leaves this earth, it's still worth it. Uh, we head back to the Republic of Texas. Gabby is in Houston listening on Guadalupe Radio. Gabby, you're on with Father John. Thank you. Uh, hi, Father. I was wondering what is the, the reason that some churches have the tabernacle just behind the altar, some of them have it on the side, some of them have it in a chapel, and some of them don't even have it at all seen, but you have to get out of the building to find the chapel, and there's a tabernacle. Yes, um, I would say the current regulation that's in the General Structural Roman Missal that came out with the, 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 the third uh, typical edition uh, that was issued uh, under Pope John Paul and then reaffirmed with Pope uh, Benedict the Sixteenth, is that the tabernacle should be centrally located. And in most cases, that means right smack in the middle of the sanctuary, uh, right behind the altar. The problem was that uh, at the Second Vatican Council, it wasn't the Council Fathers, but they made this provision in places where you got a lot of high traffic of, of, of tourists. Like when you go to St. Patty's in New York, there's people wandering around constantly, even during Mass. And so in places where there was a lot a high traffic, the, the uh, idea was have a chapel where it's accessible so people can make private um, devotion without being disturbed. But in most cases, I would say 99.9% .9 of the cases, your typical parish doesn't have tourists. You don't have buses of people coming to uh, St. Gunigunda's or uh, uh, St. Cuthbert's Church 
so it's not an issue. Uh, the documents say now there was something called environment and art that came from the, uh, you know, you know, from the Americans. It wasn't even a, a, a document from the Bishops' Conference. It was a committee statement that was advocating uh, having the tabernacle in other places, in corners, or even uh, separate chapels. Uh, that never had any weight to it. And certainly with the new revised uh, Roman Missal, it makes it clear it should be centrally located and with due reverence. And uh, as that's defined, and, and, and if you see, as you've seen it played out, it means where people can find it. You don't want to be like Mary Magdalene and go into a Catholic church and say, where have they put my Lord? Does that help, Gabby? Yes, very much so. Thank you very much, because it's very sad going to a church where there is no tabernacle. Yes, I would say keep asking. Ask the pastor, please. Put Jesus where he belongs. Yeah, we were uh, we were in a parish uh, um, just uh, this past week um, where we had been in that parish in 2019, and the tabernacle was in a side chapel, and uh, now it is in the smack dab in the center, right behind the, the main altar, and they have actually done the same thing at the cathedral parish. In wow! This, in this, yeah. So it's really. Uh, some areas where some things are moving uh, definitely in the right direction. Um, well, Father, we are just about out of time. The hour has oh. flown by. If you would be so <laughs> gracious, would you leave us with a blessing? Absolutely. Benedica vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Monday. We're just getting the week started. Tomorrow on Tuesday, Father Wade Menezes will be in the house. We'll talk faith, family, and fellowship. On Wednesday, we'll welcome Father Mitch in. Uh, Father Mitch Paqua will talk uh, church teaching, ancient languages, sacred scripture, and the like. Father Brian Milady will be here on Thursday. And on Friday, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, to wrap up the week. Thanks for helping us get started. Back at it tomorrow. Until then, God bless.